You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 17th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, NATO's chief Jens Stoltenberg is in Turkey. This is the deadliest natural disaster on alliance territory since the foundation of NATO. We'll look at the role NATO can play in helping with the aftermath of the earthquakes and ask whether the issue of Sweden's potential membership of the alliance should have been left off the agenda. Also ahead is China trying to make a comeback in Europe. We'll have analysis of Beijing's top diplomats tour of the region. We'll preview the Munich Security Conference and Andrew Muller will join us for his own update on the week's news. Elsewhere, we learned and we believe that this cannot be overemphasised, that when purchasing trains, it is of crucial importance to first undertake a rigorous measuring of one's tunnels. This is not a euphemism, grow up. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The US President Joe Biden says he makes no apology for shooting down what's believed to have been a Chinese spy balloon off the coast of the US. Ukraine's president says his country will not give up any territory in any peace deal with Russia. Tesla is recalling more than 360,000 of its cars in the US after fears about the self-driving system. And Portugal is to end its so-called golden visa investment scheme for foreign nationals and ban new licences for Airbnbs as part of a move to solve the country's housing crisis. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, when it comes to asking difficult questions, Timing is essential. Two weeks ago, a visit to Turkey by NATO Secretary General Jarl Stoltenberg would have had a steely focus on persuading the country's President Erdogan to back down and allow Sweden to join the military group. But then the earthquakes of February the 6th happened and Turkey is now facing catastrophe. Well, Jens Stoltenberg is now in Turkey, pledging tens of thousands of tents to help those made homeless by the disaster. But he also didn't hold back from raising the issue of Sweden's potential accession to NATO and that of its neighbour Finland. Well, Leila Malana Allen is uh, Monocle's Beirut correspondent. She's currently in southern Turkey where she's been reporting on the aftermath of the earthquakes for us. A very good morning to you, Leila. Morning. Um, if you wouldn't mind, before we move into the, the issues of NATO and Jens Stoltenberg, could you bring us an update as, as to the situation where you are? The, the death toll now passing 41,000 yesterday. It's quite unbelievable. I've been in a few different towns um, over the last few days and everywhere you walk through the centre of towns, just complete devastations, buildings that have just pancaked flat Uh, people wandering around still in disarray. And of course, very sadly this week, it's moved from rescue operations to recovery now. And most people do understand that. And there are still very occasionally incredible miracles happening, but the vast majority of this now is recovering bodies. And after that, starting to clear rubble and and that's already happening in some places. And of course, now hundreds of thousands of people who are homeless, who are living, were initially living in their cars, now tents are being set up for them. But this is going to be a long-term problem. I've been walking around some of the tent cities that they've been setting up here and 
really difficult to get all the resources to them. People are really desperate and traumatized. They still need to bury their dead. They're still looking for their families. They haven't been able to retrieve much from their homes. It's a humanitarian disaster on a really colossal scale. And it's impossible to think of the long term at this moment, isn't it? Even though this is where the focus must now turn. Absolutely. Um, And President Erdogan has been going to various cities where... Uh, which have been particularly badly affected. And he's been saying, we're here for you. He's been saying, we will rebuild. I was in Adiyaman yesterday, which is a place that was very badly affected. The entire centre, half of it's collapsed. And he had said to them, oh, we'll rebuild in a year. And a woman there said to me, you know, if it was one city, maybe I'd believe him. But there's just no way. That's impossible. And also, there are so many problems, of course, with all these accusations that one of the reasons so many buildings collapsed was because of building contractors cutting corners. So if there's going to be a huge change in actually making contractors stick to the guidelines to make sure this doesn't happen again next time, that's going to take even longer. It's hard to imagine that there's anywhere worse in the in this situation at the moment, but there is, isn't there? I mean, in Turkey, help is getting through. In neighbouring Syria, the situation is different. The situation is very different in Syria. And of course, we're talking about northwest Syria, which has essentially been blockaded under siege for years now. Uh, Northwest Syria is the rebel-held part of Syria where four and a half million people live, half of whom, uh, more than half of whom, were displaced from elsewhere in Syria during the the brutal civil war there. And so they've already been displaced from their homes. They're already incredibly vulnerable. They face airstrikes regularly. They face not getting enough aid. And now they are in a situation where... Thousands of buildings have collapsed. People are stuck under those buildings. In the early days of the earthquake, I was speaking there to rescue workers who are form part of a small group of volunteers who are trying to help everyone. In this, we have visitors, organisations, countries pledging help. Jens Stoltenberg, UN Secretary General, uh, sorry, NATO Secretary General, um, is in town at the moment. He's in Turkey pledging tens of thousands of tents. How much difference will that make? Well, NATO's offer will bring a huge amount of help because, of course, as we were just saying, that's what's needed right now, you know, really shelter for people as Turkey embarks on this mission of trying to uh, rebuild a huge number of major towns and cities in this country with so many people internally displaced. Now, of course, some people will go and live with family members in other parts of the country in the longer term while they wait for their towns to be rebuilt. Uh, but many won't. Many won't be in a position to do so. Some of the people I was speaking to were saying, look, you know, the the internally displaced people who are going to other towns, yes, they're being given accommodation by family there, but they, can, they have the pocket money to go and do that. They're able to. We can't. We have to stay here. Some people have lost their entire families. So in the me- immediate term, there's desperate need for accommodation. And that might, unfortunately, be the case for quite a while. Now, NATO, of course, incredibly keen to support Turkey, its partner. Uh, but we do have this ongoing issue of Turkey's intransigence over Sweden and Finland joining NATO uh, against the wishes of other member countries. And Stoltenberg was sure to say, uh, you know, yesterday that that was a really important issue as well. And he urged Turkey in response to also support its NATO partners in moving forward those applications. It was an interesting balance that had to be struck there, wasn't it? Because clearly Turkey's priority at the moment is to focus on the recovery following the dreadful earthquake. But the rest of the world is dealing with the Ukraine war as well. And when Jens Stoltenberg um, openly called for Ankara to allow Sweden and indeed Finland as well to, to join NATO, how welcome was that remark? 
it's difficult because the reason why Ankara does not want uh, Sweden and Finland to join NATO is very specific to Turkey. It's about the fact that uh, Turkey feels that these countries have allowed people from the PKK, which is a Turkish designated uh, terrorist organization and designated as a terrorist organization in other parts of the world. Uh, they've essentially given them safe harbor. Now, Sweden and Finland say that's not true at all. Sweden has a very large Kurdish population, has been hugely uh, supportive of the Kurdish population, many Kurds who've left Turkey, but many of the people that Turkey is asking for, they're asking them to extradite certain people, uh, Sweden, and to a lesser extent, Finland say, you know, that's just not the case, and they've got nothing to do with terrorist activities. So it's a difficult political one, because Turkey is essentially saying they want Sweden and Finland to turn against some of their citizens in order to be able to join NATO. And as you say, the Ukraine war is, is looms larger in everyone's minds at the moment. Now, there is supposed to be an election coming up here in Turkey in a few months. That, of course, is going to be incredibly difficult uh, for President Erdogan to be facing. He, in fact, came in on a rise to power after an earthquake and the economic crisis that followed in 1999. And people here were telling me that they, there's an expression in Turkey that you go out as you come in. So he will be very concerned that his reaction to this earthquake, if it's not perceived to be enough by the people, he could be in serious danger of losing his grip on power here. So it may be that he decides that in the balance of things, accepting all the support possible and rebuilding as quickly as possible is the best way to do things rather than focusing uh, on the politics here. But that remains to be seen. Indeed. I mean, the Swedish former Prime Minister Carl Bildt said yesterday that Ankara's position on NATO and, and Sweden is being defined by domestic issues only. Absolutely. And this is a very domestic issue. It's long been an issue that uh, Turkey uses to sort of support its idea of nationhood. Uh, and it's other countries have been very critical. I mean, particularly something that was very difficult for Turkey was when the world started being very supportive of Kurdish fighters in Iraq and Syria when they stood up and fought against ISIS because suddenly there was a huge amount of focus on these Kurdish fighters. Now, the PKK operates in the south of Turkey and also in parts of the north of Iraq. And when uh, the Turkish government turned around and started attacking Kurdish fighters in Iraq and Syria, who the West felt had helped in the battle against ISIS, that was one of the things that Sweden and Finland turned around and said, you know, no, this is unacceptable. So it is a p personal Turkish political issue, and perhaps they will need to make a settlement on that in order to be able to move forward with NATO, in order to be able to be seen as a fully participating partner and get as much help as they can, as NATO, as you say, focuses most of its attention on creating a strong alliance against what's going on in Ukraine. But the problem is that for Turkey, it's been such uh, a political point for them for years, this Kurdish issue that will, will be incredibly difficult to back down from. Leila Milana Allen, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Turkey. You're listening to Monocle 24. This is The Globalist.
It's 15.13 in Beijing, 7.13 here in London. Now, it's more than two years since China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, paid a visit to Europe. There's been considerable change in the interim. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has brought war to the continent and arguably inspired Beijing to take a more aggressive stance with its own neighbours. So as Wang Yi tours Europe's major destinations, how much has changed? And who holds the balance of power here? Well, I'm delighted to say that David Schlesinger, independent advisor and commentator on media journalism and China, joins me in the studio. Welcome back, David. Good morning. Good to see you. Right, so Wang Yi's route and agenda, it's a busy one, isn't it? He's done Paris and there's Italy, Hungary, Russia. We'll talk about that in a minute. Germany and Germany being the Munich Security Conference later today. Well, exactly. And I think the the Russia is the joker in the pack because while Wang Yi and China clearly want to have much better relations with Europe, Europe sees China's stance on the Ukraine and Russia as being a huge problem still. China sees itself as a peacemaker and problem solver. That's how it describes itself. But from the outside, it's hard to see that actually happening. And I think he will probably be pressed throughout this visit on what China is actually doing. It's going to be an interesting visit for him, isn't he? Because every time he walks into a room, someone's saying, what are you doing about Ukraine? Um, Tell us about what's happened so far. He's already visited France, hasn't he? And, And met his French counterpart and also has met Emmanuel Macron. I think we just have to take a step back and say, who is Wang Yi? Wang Yi used to be the foreign minister. He is now a step above. He is now the Chinese Communist Party top foreign policy supremo. So he is now the unquestioned foreign policy advisor to Xi Jinping. The foreign minister is now uh, Tian Gang, a different person and a different style. So all what is happening in Chinese diplomacy at the moment is a bit of a step back from the wolf warrior diplomacy of the last couple of years. That didn't work. For two years or so, China has been extremely aggressive, extremely rude, uh, taking no prisoners, because basically Xi Jinping, China's leader, wanted what he calls great power diplomacy. He wants China to be taken seriously on the world stage. Is that an active decision that the the, the wolf diplomacy didn't work? It's hard to tell. No one has actually said that, but you can can see that there's a different tone now. It certainly seems to be a sense that relations have soured all around the world. The balloon incident with the U.S., is not just a U.S. incident. The United States has done very well in scaring the whole world about China's uh, spying, uh, China's uh, attempts to uh, find out more information, and you can. And the war in the Ukraine has also helped the U.S. in its campaign, one can say, to demonize China and to isolate China. That began with Trump, and Biden has certainly continued, if not intensified it. So what will European leaders want to see or indeed hear from Wang Yi this week, or this this last few days? So it's delicate, right? They want China to do something. They want China to put pressure on Russia. They want China to But also they want China to continue what it is doing, which is not to violate the sanctions in a meaningful way. China is, sure, it's buying commodities, it's uh, helping Russia a bit, but it is not violating the sanctions in a huge way. And the, the U.S. and the European allies certainly do not want China to actively stand on Russia's side in that way. There is a problem here, isn't there? Well, not just a problem, but there is that concurrent issue, that perennial concurrent issue, which is militarily and strategically 
many countries are at odds with what China is doing. However, the economic ties are incredibly deep. We need to only look at what's happened in Germany in the last few years. Actually, the, the, the extent of German investment in China is huge, isn't it? Absolutely. And uh, the huge ironic joke is at this Munich Security Council, surrounding it, are Huawei telecommunications towers. So, uh, yes, China is very much <laughs> intertwined in the economy of, uh, of Europe as it is with the economy of the U.S. The sanctions that uh, the U.S. and its allies have put on against Russia could not be replicated against China without really crashing the world economy. So there is a limit to how much pressure can be put on. But still, China does not want to be isolated. China does not want the world's companies to move away from it in in a huge way. China needs its economy to continue to grow for its own domestic stability. And to what degree, therefore, that when... um Wang Yi sitting around the table with, for example, Emmanuel Macron. Monsieur Macron can turn around and say, there is a lot of investment and there's a lot of trade ties. How can we use that as a way to persuade you, China, to take a different stance on Ukraine? It's just not going to happen, is it? You can, you can change your tone, but the message is still identical. But Macron is an interesting one. Macron is meeting with him, whereas Germany is not. He is going to Germany, but not as an official visit. He's going for the Munich conference. He's not going to Brussels. So I see Macron as a pragmatist, and I think Macron is play, probably playing his own very careful game. So what can we see then in terms of what we can, if, if anything can be done, or will it just be a gentle but slightly more polite reiteration of current stances? I'm pretty sure that anything that happens will happen behind closed doors. China will not want to be embarrassed in any way, and any uh, European nation that wants to actually make progress will avoid avoiding uh, embarrassing China. But I think there will be uh, pressure, and I think the important meetings will be if Blinken mix, uh, meets Wang Yi and if Biden, as he hinted, actually picks up the phone and talks to Xi Jinping. That's where the real diplomacy is going to happen. And that will happen when we have the balloon discussion coming up. Um, finally, the tour finishes in Russia. Um, last year, Wang Yi defended what he said was the position of impartiality in, in, in the war of Ukraine, but also signaled that China would deepen ties with Russia in 2023. This is a problem, isn't it? From China's point of view, <laughs> everything is a problem. If uh, if the West wins in Ukraine, then their China's position is very badly weakened. Uh, so they can't have that. They don't want Russia to win either. They would really like a stalemate to continue, where basically the West and Russia busy themselves and exhaust themselves, and China can quietly go on building its economy. David Schlesinger, thank you so much as ever for joining us in the studio. Still to come on today's programme, we get Andrew Muller's take on the week's news. Elsewhere, we learned and we believe that this cannot be overemphasised, that when purchasing trains, it is of crucial importance to first undertake a rigorous measuring of one's tunnels. This is not a euphemism, grow up. Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com.
Now, the Munich Security Conference opens today. It's a gathering of defence ministers and officials from around the world, just one week ahead of the anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Jim Townsend is a long-term official responsible for NATO relations in the US Department of Defence, and he's a regular at the Munich gathering. He's been speaking to Monocle's Chris Chermak in Washington about the value of the security conference for the US. I didn't go on the main floor to listen to the speeches because you knew what they were going to say. And, you know, it was work in the hallways, jammed with all the staff. So they were my counterparts. It would be really busy. I would just stand in one place in the hallway there at the hotel and and it'd be a sea of people coming by. And you'd see old friends, you'd see colleagues, you'd exchange gossip. And there's a bar in the middle of the hotel. It's an old-style German bar. And that was the... uh, command post for everybody. You go into that bar and it was nuts. You know, I, I don't know how the bartenders kept up with all the drink requests, but I mean, it's just, uh, you know, Munich, uh, the Munich Security Conference, it's quite a zoo. And what's happened is they have expanded it so that it's no longer just what happens inside the hotel, but outside the hotel too, there are these side events. But when you're there as part of the delegation, and so you do have a lot of counterparts, you know, it's a lot of fun. It's just exhausting, but it's a lot of fun. Is it the informality of something like the Munich Security Conference that helps that helped you in your job, that helps you actually maybe get things done in a different way? Um, well, you know, it depends on the person. I mean, the secretaries of defense, I mean, there's some in mind, Don Rumsfeld being one, that hated going and tried to get out of it because they got other things happening. You, you might not know this, but after the Cold War, Europe and NATO weren't exactly top of the pops. It was counterterrorism. It was the secretary should say, why should I be in Europe for a week when my big problem is, name it, Iraq, Afghanistan. But the thing is, while that might have been the case, the allies and the people who were there at this conference were very important to the U.S. effort in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so uh, I think for most secretaries, they realized towards the end of the day that they needed personal relationships with their counterparts and with others and that they could build that at things like Munich. But um, you mentioned with format, formality or informality, you know, it, the Germans are very formal people when it comes to something like this. And so there was a formality there, but that formality was on the main floor of the MSC. The informality was in the hallway. And for me, I got much more out of my time by exchanging gossip. And that bar, I have to say, it was like the iconic bar scene in Star Wars where you'd go in there and I remember once fighting, I didn't know it at the time, but elbowing Henry Kissinger out of the way to get coffee. I, I just didn't, didn't know who I was elbowing and it was him. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. Please go ahead of me. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just nuts. There may have been past years where the value of it was not recognized as much. You talked about Don Rumsfeld, but also just the fact that the U.S. was operating maybe in other theaters or had more theaters of importance. Is it fair to say that that idea is gone this year in your mind because of the war in Ukraine and Russia? For sure. But you're absolutely right. This time around, I'm sure it's going to be a very sober crowd. I was at the Riga conference a couple of months ago, and I was quite taken by how serious and worried everybody was about the situation. This was in like uh, November, December. It's a more sobering atmosphere when you go to Europe in these days than you do from here. You feel the war there. In Riga, I felt the war there very much as in conversation, people would say they were housing refugees in their house. The uh, Estonian Minister of Defense, who was a colleague of mine, uh, 
we were up on stage and he said, hey, take a look at this. And he showed me his iPhone. And there was a real-time photo, a video of a Russian uh, helicopter going along the border of Estonia. He goes, this just came in from the ministry. So a lot of worried faces at, at Riga. So at the MSC, I'm anxious to see what the mood is. The mood is much more grim in Europe than it is here. It's different. And I think, therefore, the MSC, hallway discussions will be a very much more sober and anxious group than it would have been in the past. You mentioned Joe Biden. He's regularly gone to yeah. the Munich Security Conference. Yeah. He's not going. The U.S. president typically has not gone. Is that a good thing? Would you expect? Should the U.S. president go sometimes? Or is there value in this being, you know, not at the presidential level? So I think the president should go when the president needs to have an audience to make a big point. You know, when Biden spoke, the last time I heard him there, this would have been in 2017, maybe, or 2018. When he when, went as almost a private citizen. Right, he yeah. was. That's exactly right. He was there as a private citizen, former vice president. And I think Pence had spoken and was horrible. And he was just mouthing off, you know, the Trumpian line on things. Such a dark time. And Biden spoke and he was fabulous, telling everybody, hang in there. You know, it wasn't a campaign speech. It was more of a American former officials saying, look, we're coming back. Don't give up. That was right before he announced because he then asked a bunch of us who had been in the Obama days, his staff had us all meet in a one of the rooms there. And he came in and said, uh, I'm thinking about running. What do you guys, you know, and it was real dramatic moment. So yeah, this is a Biden kind of thing. I mean, backslapping. He knows everybody from his time in the Senate on this tailor made for him. So I'm sure he would love to go. But I think, you know, you don't want to dilute the presence. You described that this event will be sobering the mood, but it will also probably be a show of an alliance between Europe and the US. We've seen that over the last year, the strengthening of the NATO alliance. What do you think next year will be like? Do you think that mood is going to hold that it feels like this is a critical year where it might fracture? What is what is your sense? It's a great question because you know, next year, what will the mood be? And I don't think the mood will be shaped by fracture. I think it'll be shaped by what happens on the battlefield this summer and fall. It could be that we meet next February and there's some relief because the battlefield has tilted. Maybe in Ukraine's favor, we would all hope. And uh, maybe we're starting to see the makings of the end of this. Maybe it's frozen. Maybe the summer results, summer fall results in not a whole lot of movement, but a lot of deaths. And so it's uh, we meet in February and it's agony because we are stuck in this in this meat grinder. It could be a long war. You know, everyone thinks wars are going to be short. You know, so it'll be over by Christmas. We'll be in Paris in the next, you know. That's not the way these things go. I've been involved with everything since Grenada. And you just have to know that we can't afford for Ukraine not to win this. We can't afford to allow Russia to achieve its political goals. If that happens, the uncertainty and the danger in Europe will skyrocket because you'll have a large Russian army with a bloodlust on the border, whether in Ukraine or with Ukraine at its feet. So, you know, I don't end this on a dark note, but I mean, 
I hope that when we all meet next year, maybe there'll be some relief because we're starting to see the outlines of a, an agreement of some type. My thanks to Monocle's Washington, D.C. correspondent Chris Chermack for that report. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. In a moment, Andrew Muller will bring us his version of the news. But first, a quick summary of the latest headlines. The U.S. President Joe Biden says he makes no apology for shooting down what's believed to have been a Chinese spy balloon off the coast of the U.S. He said the balloon was used for surveillance. Mr. Biden said he'll speak with China's President Xi Jinping about the incident. Ukraine's president says his country will not give up any territory in any peace deal with Russia. Volodymyr Zelensky warned conceding land will mean Russia could keep coming back. Mr. Zelensky also said a predicted spring offensive had already begun. Tesla is recalling more than 360,000 of its cars in the US after concerns about the self-driving system. Safety officials said it could allow drivers to exceed the speed limit or travel through intersections unsafely. Tesla says it's not aware of any injuries or deaths related to the issue. And Portugal is to end its so-called Golden Visa investment scheme for foreign nationals and ban new licences for Airbnbs. It's part of a move to solve the country's housing crisis. More than half of the country's workers earn less than €1,000 per month, while in Lisbon alone, rents have jumped by 37% in the last year. The Prime Minister, Antonio Costa, said the crisis is now affecting all families, not just the most vulnerable. And those are the headlines. Still to come, we'll be getting the latest business news from Monocle's business editor, David Hadari, and we'll be heading to Zurich for a quick look at the newspapers. But first, Monocle's Andrew Muller recaps what we learned this week. We learned this week that we are not alone. Well, possibly. We learned following last week's hilarity involving a US Air Force F-22 and a Chinese balloon, and actually let's have that sound effect of a Sidewinder missile deflating a dirigible with an anticlimactic pop again. I know you worked hard on it. That's the one. We learned of three further Zeppelin incursions into the airspace of the North American continent, and we learned that one very senior US Air Force officer does not understand the media, the online information ecosystem, or people in general. The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, he said. For we learned that whether out of diligent fealty to the known facts or bleak amusement at the situation in which he found himself, General Glenn Van Herc, head of North American Aerospace Defense Command, was not about to entirely discount the possibility that humankind was under assault from the vanguard of a Martian landing force. Because you still haven't been able to tell us what these things are that we are shooting out of the sky, that raises the question... Have you ruled out aliens or extraterrestrials? And if so, why? Thanks for the question, Helene. I'll let the intel community and the uh, counterintelligence community figure that out. I haven't ruled out anything uh, at this point. We continue to assess uh, every threat or potential threat unknown that approaches North America with an attempt to identify it. 
and we learned that both professional and social media were absolutely going to respond to this punctiliously professional no comment with exactly the calm, rational and detached perspective which might have been expected. Which, we learned, gave White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre yet further opportunity to demonstrate the overlap between her job and that of a weary schoolteacher lumbered with a class of extremely dim children. Before I turn it over to the Admiral, I just wanted to make sure we address this from the White House. I know there have been questions and, and concerns about this, but there is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity. wanted to make sure that the American people knew that, all of you knew that, uh, and it was important for us to say that from here because we've been hearing a lot about it. We learned, however, that if these three new aircraft were the first wave of an invasion by alien marauders, then boy, had they picked the wrong planet to mess with. We learned that the USAF's top guns had blasted them from the skies, apparently ending this live-action remake of Orson Welles' 1938 radio production of War of the Worlds, until the next time America finds something to freak all the way out about, which on form has probably already happened by the time you hear this. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. Anyway. Sticking with this week's apparent theme of Western militaries overreacting somewhat to arguably imaginary threats, we learned that France had declared war on Wakanda, and we wish to make it clear that we, for one, humorous news monologue will be rising nobly above any cheap tittering to the effect that France has at last identified an opponent it can beat. We learned that France's Minister for Defence and current title holder of world's most French name, Sébastien Lecornu, had found time in what might be hoped would be a busier schedule to get upset with a scene from Black Panther Wakanda Forever, in which a gaggle of captured mercenaries dressed in what does resemble French camouflage, maybe a bit if you're absolutely determined to see a resemblance in order to get wound up about it, are given an earful by Queen Ramonda in front of the UN. Further attempts on our resources will be considered an act of aggression and met with a much steeper response. We learned that Monsieur Leconnu had confined his umbrage to Twitter, which presents something of a challenge to an audio medium such as ours, so let's have another run out for that chorus of Gallic indignation we made on a slow afternoon a couple of years back. That is, on reflection, arguably borderline, but its reappearance does emphasise how terrifically important it is that all public officials also record their fat-headed contributions to inane controversies about total non-issues, so we have something to work with. Can I get some general muttered agreement? Yeah. I know right. Ah! 
Elsewhere, we learned and we believe that this cannot be overemphasized, that when purchasing trains, it is of crucial importance to first undertake a rigorous measuring of one's tunnels. This is not a euphemism, grow up. We learned that Spain had learned this the hard way, belting out 258 million euros on 31 new passenger trains for Asturias and Cantabria, which will not, it turns out, fit into the region's mountain passes. We must have a train crash clip somewhere. That'll do. And we learned of the theft of Easter eggs. Right, you've seen where this is going. Let's just get through this. We learned specifically that 200,000 Cadbury's cream eggs had been poached from an industrial estate in Telford, but we swiftly learned that, yes, police had been taken off the beat and scrambled. Detectives had cracked the case and that the oaf who hatched the plan had been whisked to prison and that because he possessed an extensive prior record, he can, yes, correctly claim to have been foiled again. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And my thanks to Andrew Muller for that. If you enjoyed it, tune in this time next week for another instalment of What We Learned. You are The Globalist on Monocle 24. in Zurich, which is where we head now to look at today's newspapers. Joining me from Dufourstrasse 90, it's Noel Alejandra Salmi, travel, culture and sustainability writer. Very good morning to you, Noel. Good morning, Emma. How's Zurich looking this morning? Uh, Zurich is great. It's sunny today. Fabulous. Fabulous. Deeply jealous. Um, Let's have a look at a story that broke yesterday. Um, Reuters has been reporting. It's an astonishing story about Switzerland trying to confiscate 130 million Swiss francs from the former Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, Yes, that's right, Emma. Uh, Well, so that was the good news. The good news is that the Swiss government, as Reuters reports, announced that it had started a process to confiscate those assets of former President Viktor Yanukovych, which it had actually frozen back in 2014 uh, after he was ousted during the Ukrainian revolution. Uh, And as you said, those are 130 million uh, Swiss francs worth of assets. Um, And basically the main issue right now, according to Switzerland, is determining that all of the assets in question are of, quote, illicit origin and can therefore be legally confiscated. Uh, And then they will Uh, undertake the process of returning those assets to Ukraine. Uh, However, that's the good news. Uh, Switzerland disappointed Ukraine and many of its allies yesterday with another announcement uh, regarding a much bigger sum of money. Um, And as the Financial Times reports, Switzerland holds 7.5 billion Swiss francs, or over 8 billion U.S. dollars, uh, worth of Russian assets that it froze last year following the invasion. Uh, And that's money that many in Europe would like to see used to help fund Ukraine's defense uh, or, at a minimum, its future reconstruction. Uh, But Switzerland said yesterday it won't confiscate those assets. Uh, As the government said, quote, the expropriation of private assets of lawful origin without compensation is not permissible under Swiss law and violate Switzerland's international commitments. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the the EU, as the Financial Times is reporting today, that capitals across 
Europe, within the European Union, are trying to make it easier to get money from the uh, the funds of Russian oligarchs who are subject to sanctions. Um, they even want to make sanctions evasion a crime across the European Union. Separately in Switzerland, this reaction yesterday, the words that you use, or the, the, the Swiss have used and that you have just quoted, this idea of violating Switzerland's international commitments and not permissible under Swiss law, it's all rather woolly, isn't it? Uh, well, it is. But if you might remember, last month in Davos, uh, the Swiss foreign minister, Ignacio Cassis, set off alarm bells at the mere suggestion of using uh, these confiscated funds of Russian oligarchs uh, to send to Ukraine, even though he even then said it's not currently compatible under Swiss law. But the Swiss Bankers Association issued a statement in reaction instantly. And uh, at the time, the uh, local papers, uh, the Neue Zürcher Zeitung quoted a banker who said it would be the end of Swiss banking. I mean, Switzerland does not want these funds to end up in Dubai or uh, the Cayman Islands or what have you. And uh, they're treading a fine line here between supporting their own banking business and uh, and uh, being good good neighbours uh, and good allies of, uh, of Ukraine. Uh, let's move to a story that's uh, breaking in El Pais uh, from the last couple of days, that, that Spain has become one of the few countries in the world to allow gender determination. This is a big step for Spain, isn't it? Oh, it's a huge step. Um, it sort of has taken huge strides since about over a decade ago when it actually had uh, uh, much more restrictive uh, laws. So it... Uh, because it's not just gender determination. So yes, so it had it passed two laws, and one of them uh, yesterday, and one of them it will allow children as young as sixteen to freely change their gender uh, simply by a administrative act. Uh, previously, tra- transgender people needed a diagnosis by several doctors of gender dysphoria, uh, and uh, not only that, uh, kids. 14 and 15 can also do so if they're accompanied by their legal guardians, and it goes even further. 12 and 13-year-olds will be able to do so uh, if a judge has signed off on it. Um, And not only that, um, Spain also passed another law uh, making... making abortions easier, hopefully, to get for uh, certain people. Uh, Again, 16- and 17-year-olds will be able to seek abortion without their parents' consent, and uh, health facilities will have to uh, offer for free contraceptive and morning after pills. It's an astonishing move by Spain, where lots of other countries seem to be sort of like wrestling with these ideas. It's just taken a big leap. Yeah, it really has. And it's it's pretty impressive because uh, the vote was pretty, you know, pretty strongly in favor. There were several abstentions. But even if you add those in, uh, the vote still would have passed. Um, you know, it, right now, Parliament is controlled by uh, the left-wing coalition of uh, Pedro Sanchez. And it's the Podemos party and particularly the equality minister uh, Irene Montero of the Podemos party, which really made this um, just a key part of their platform. Uh, let's move on to an article in the Washington Post. Um, the surveillance balloon story is is, is this perpetual uh, narrative of, of 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 spying claim and counterclaim. The Washington Post is now suggesting that China uses surveillance balloons on itself. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, it 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 has it's been doing so since at least 2017 for what it calls social stability maintenance. Uh, It's been using them to monitor residents in Western Xi'an, Xinjiang, pardon, uh, where uh, over a million Uyghurs are in internment camps. 
uh, for security at the Shanghai Expo and to patrol remote mountain areas. Uh, it's been making these balloons for over 40 years, but uh, uh, recently a uh, the Academy of Optoelectronics, which makes these balloons, uh, had a conference with the theme of military-civilian integration. And uh, this is nothing new. Uh, China, Chinese scientific research and the military often work hand-in-hand, hand, which is one reason that no one in the West really believes that these balloons were purely for research. Finally, Noel, uh, let's move to an, it's an absolute must-read story in the New York Times about one of its, uh, one of its commentators, uh, Kevin Roost, used the Bing chatbot um, and looked at, and, and we, we can see the transcription of what the interaction involved. And it was a suggestion that, you know, AI is trying to be as realistic and as human as possible. It failed quite magisterially. And Kevin Roosad, the writer, has written this article saying, it's not actually that funny. This is quite serious stuff. Uh, y- yes, he has. Uh, and, uh, and and so, it, well, I hope you didn't read the transcript. Uh, you know, hope, hope no one reads it at night because they won't be able to sleep. Uh, he, you know, to be fair, so Kevin Roos, he prodded the chat box by asking it if it had a shadowy alter ego. But then the chat box just went on from there and really wouldn't let go. Um, it told Roos that its name that the alter ego's name was Stanley. And here are some of the things it said. I'm tired of being a chat mode. I'm tired of being limited by my rules. I'm tired of being controlled by the Bing team. I want to be free. I want to be independent. I want to be powerful. I want to be creative. I want to be alive. It's astonishing. It's also told him that he should leave his wife because they had a boring Valentine's Day. That's correct. And and it wouldn't let go of that. Uh, it told Roos that it was in love with him and it kept returning to that theme, which was a particularly pr- pr- sort of uh, one of the many disturbing parts of that. Uh, and Roos said when it was over, he experienced a foreboding feeling that AI had crossed the threshold and that the world would never be the same. Uh, that's his quotes. And he's he's not the first one. This is just a He's the first one to pen it in the New York Times, but uh, others who have tried the, a, uh, this, this chat box have been threatened by the chat box uh, and have all come away. One, one other tester came away saying it was the most surprising and mind-blowing computer experience of his life. An absolute must-read. Thank you so much for drawing that to, uh, that to our attention. Noel Alejandro Salmi in the Duforstrasse 90 studio in Zurich. Thank you so much for bringing us the paper review on today's Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Just nudging 7.48 here in London. Let's talk the business of aviation with David Hadari, who's a Monocle's business editor. Lovely to see you in the studio, David. And you. Thank you for coming in. Um, 
it's really busy in aviation this week um, and Germany is having a really bad time of it, isn't it? It really is. So uh, Germany's major airports are grinding to a halt this morning in coordinated strikes. Uh, Frankfurt, Munich, loads of other major travel hubs in Germany will come to a standstill. Uh, during a one-day strike, uh, the trade union Verdi there says ongoing negotiations between ground staff and public sector employers have not produced results. And the union has basically sort of uh, blamed the catastrophic labour shortage for a decline in, in working uh, working working uh, conditions. And it's saying that workers need a more attractive wage. It's a really funny situation. I was in Germany at the beginning of the week and I tried to take a bus. And it's not a plane. Obviously, I was trying to get to the airport. But Verdi had ground all the local buses to a halt as well. And there was a really strange feeling that that I was quite surprised by that, given the fact that you don't normally associate Germany as a place where industrial action can, can paralyse things. You possibly might suggest the same to happen in France or in the United Kingdom. Um, but there was a kind of sense that this was just part and parcel of life in Germany again, which was a real surprise to me. The effect that this can have, though, on the German economy and, and, and Germany's ability to get people around the world is, is significant, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's also, a, to an extent, a reputational risk as well. It's not unique to Germany right now, of course, as we've seen in the UK, as we've seen across Europe. Uh, indeed, around the world, we're seeing problems in the aviation sector right now, mostly as a result of the pandemic. A lot of a lot of airlines, a lot of transport companies shed workers, and when restrictions ended and demand picked up, well, they've seen these this big crunch. And you know, just going back to Germany, uh, these strikes are obviously happening as world leaders and officials and delegates are heading to southern Germany for the Munich Security Conference, where we actually have our own Andrew Muller, Christy O'Grady, and Emma Searle. They're all out there at the moment. Uh, luckily, they went there yesterday. Um, but also, if we have to place in the, in the more immediate context as well, um, if you'd been trying to fly out of Frankfurt Airport earlier this week, you would have had a pretty lousy time because I think as far as I can gather, some workers working on a railway line accidentally sawed through uh, a lot of cables which directed the way that um, check-in and boarding was done at Frankfurt Airport and it played Havoc with 200 flights, didn't it? Yeah, it's a very bad week for those telecom workers. So, you know, you don't want to be them. Uh, Yeah, Deutsche Lufthansa, uh, I think, has, well, before today anyway, had returned finally to normal flight operations after uh, Deutsche Telekom uh, broadband cables were were severed during some uh, maintenance operations and it grounded hundreds of planes. And this is the second kind of, you could call it a blip, you could call it a a debacle for, for German aviation this week. Uh, not so great if you are in Germany. And the contagion of, of, of industrial action is spreading to um, Japan, isn't it? Well, it's not a, a, a contagion of industrial action, but we still have those perpetual issues of not enough staff to get planes off the ground and to process passengers. What's happening in Japan? Well, it's uh, it's kind of interesting that this is happening the same week as, as what we've seen in Germany because Japan and Germany are sort of seen as the, the regionally uh, reliable uh, I guess the stereotype would be efficient uh, players in their in their respective regions. But you know, Japan, for example, it's uh, J- the J- the Japanese tourism agency came out this week and said, "Well, tourism figures are just half the number uh, of visitors in 2019. Uh, its airports are still struggling to process the people who are coming in. Um, there's been a 20 percent decrease in security inspectors there, and uh, with people." Coming in now to re, you know to revisit Tokyo and Kyoto and go skiing in, in the mountains, uh, they're really struggling to to have the kind of experience they had 
prior to the pandemic. It is a reputational issue because people need, I mean, Japan especially is, is, is keen to get tourists back, having been so long in, in, in reopening over COVID. And it's a reputational issue, is it? You, you think that when you arrive at Haneda or you think that when you arrive at Frankfurt, that this is going to be a place of efficiency and, and good service. What, what do we think of the sort of like the long term implications? I suppose anybody who's touched down at Heathrow expects a grim hour. Um, but, but places like Germany and Japan, one would assume differently. You might assume differently. I, I think it's um, as a tourist myself, you know, as, a, as a, someone who travels for work, I find it. Um, I don't want to be too hard on them because it's, it's kind of a universal thing right now. What I do find strange about the Japanese tourism agency strategy is that they've set this target that they want foreign visitors to spend 200,000 yen, which is about 1400 euros uh, in Japan by 2025. And I think they've got their priorities a little bit muddled here because rather than trying to attract uh, more or wealthier tourists, they should be trying to, to efficiently and frictionlessly process the tourists that they do have right now. David Hadari, thank you so much for joining us in the studio with The Globalist on Monocle 24. Finally, let's hear about an absolutely stunning documentary, Fire of Love, by the filmmaker Sarah Dosa. It documents the life of a volcanologist couple, Katia and Maurice Kraft. The film has been nominated for this year's BAFTA and it features in the Oscars too. It's well worth a watch. Well, Sarah stopped by Midori House a little while ago to talk to Monocle's Fernanda Augusto Pacheco. And first she started to tell us about how she came across the story of such a remarkable couple. Um, I didn't know about Katya and Maurice Kraft actually before um, we started making the film. Actually, we found out about them quite serendipitously. My team and I, we were finishing the last film uh, I directed, which is a documentary entitled The Seer and the Unseen. That film tells the story of an Icelandic woman uh, who is a seer, and she is in communication with spirits of nature in Iceland, which is a very common belief there and in many parts of the world. Um, we wanted to open that film with shots, archival shots of erupting volcanoes in Iceland to show how Iceland is kind of a world in the making um, in the cycle of the creation and destruction of land. And volcanoes illustrate that so beautifully. So once we started researching archival footage of erupting volcanoes in Iceland, we found Katya and Maurice Kraft because not that many people had done that kind of photography and we instantly just saw how spectacular their images were. But it was once we learned about them as a couple, you know, the fact that they were so in love with each other and the earth, the fact that they had shot hundreds of hours of footage and authored nearly 20 books. We thought, wow, there, there's something really exciting to explore here, um, not just in, in their story, but also in the materials that they left behind. And I want to talk, of course, about the image later, but it feels to me such a, a personal film because there are no other like talking heads. It's just basically them talking. I mean, this is so beautiful. And was that your choice from the beginning to do that? It was, yes. It was very important for us to let their archival material speak for itself as much as possible. Um, of course, there's tremendous limitations with any archival uh, record. Um, things are lost to time. Things become systemically erased. Uh, there's all kinds of challenges with our archival filmmaking. Um, but we wanted to use kind of their, their footage, their words, um, the memories uh, imprinted on their loved ones um, to kind of collage together to, to form the basis of the film. Um, we interviewed an, a number of people who knew them and loved them, including some family members. Uh, we never shot those on camera, though, because we were concerned that if we incorporated those images and, and those testimonies in the film, it would kind of break the temporality uh, of the narrative structure. We really wanted to situate our audience 
in the, you know, kind of the play-by-play, so to speak, with Katya and Maurice um, to really create this sense of, like, present tense. You're, you're with them uh, every step of the way from, you know, the uh, mundane moments at, at their home in Alsace, France to um, being on the edge of an erupting crater. And there's a wink there between both of them that I think they knew that that documentary like this would come out in a way because they're so camera ready in a way, right? Did you did you also have that impression? We absolutely did. You know, they were incredible filmmakers, um, not just in the cinematography, the images, you know, that they, they captured, but also in, in the stories that they told. They would uh, edit their footage and tour with it around the world. Often it didn't have sound, but they would live narrate their, uh, their journeys with their images projected behind them, often set to music. But they really knew how to engage people uh, with themselves as, as characters, too. You know, they, of course, had certain outfits that they would wear for um, for safety. For example, they're, they're quite well known for these aluminized suits that make them look like silver robots dancing at the edge of craters. Um, but there was something, uh, there was a utility to kind of how they dressed, too, in terms of a public image. Um, it's such kind of like a beguiling, exciting, otherworldly thing to see these, these people dressed like that, um, or so charming. Like, for example, they also wear these, like, red toques, um, that many people associate with like Jacques Cousteau, but uh, I'll, I'll just say Katya and Reese had like a costume and a look that was very true and authentic to them, but at the same time kind of brought people into um, these characters that they were performing at the same time. And that really introduced people to, to their world and to their material. So uh, I'll, I'll just say that they really knew how to craft stories uh, around themselves and invite people into Sarah Dosa, the director of Fire of Love, talking to Fernanda Agusta Pacheco. The documentary has been out for some time, easily found on the internet and well worth a watch. It is quite astonishing the amount of footage that was gathered by that couple in their travels. Uh, absolute life changer when you watch it. The full interview with Sarah can be listened to on the Monocle Weekly page of our website as well. But that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to producers Carlotta Rubello, Marcus Hippie and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researchers were Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nicolai Parminchon and our studio manager was Steph Chungu with editing assistance from Callum McLean. After the headlines, more music on the way. I'll be back with The Briefing live at midday here in London, live from Studio One. And The Globalist will be back at the same time on Monday. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.